You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, Digital Content Editor for the Journal of Addiction Medicine. Today we are joined by Dr. Jill Cochran, an Associate Professor of Social Work and Psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh and Associate Dean for Research at the University of Pittsburgh School of Social Work. His work focuses on substance use disorder interventions in the healthcare setting, primarily involving opioids. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Cochran. I want to start by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit and also to discuss how you got into the field of addiction treatment and research. Yeah, so the field of addiction medicine, um, you know, I it's a huge need, especially in healthcare settings. Uh, it's clear that um, individuals that come in with, uh, you know, different uh, health conditions um, in different kind of touch points throughout the system, oftentimes um, uh, the comorbid conditions that make all of their other kind of health problems even worse are substance use disorders and behavioral health uh, conditions. So from the social work perspective, um, and I am you know, a, a social worker uh, by training, uh, this is where we uh, feel like we can make the biggest change for individuals addressing uh, health behavior uh, as well as social determinants of health. So that is how I came into this. And before uh, being an academic researcher, um, I, did, uh, I did a little bit of a combination. I, um, I was a health policy analyst during the day, and at nighttime I uh, was an emergency department social worker in a trauma one center. So I uh, kind of got to help, actually help people at night and, and write about it during the day. <clears throat> And uh, with uh, mothers and opioids, uh, we um, here at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, when I first arrived, there was a, there was a group of investigators who got together um, with uh, and began talking about the uh, kind of the opioid uh, crisis going on um, and how our women's hospital had seen huge increases in this area. And so there was a number of projects identified, um, and uh, there was a pharmacokinetics project identified. There was kind of a translation project identified, and then uh, there was a kind of a psychosocial during pregnancy project identified. And I, um, given my expertise in uh, uh, clinical studies uh, and, and human-facing interventions or patient-facing interventions. Um, and particularly with the patient navigation model, um, I led the project. So that's how I got into this particular area. And I can see how that would lead you to the study that is coming out here in the journal. Um, I'd like to ask you if you could next give us a brief overview of the study, of the rationale and the findings. Yeah. uh, So the study provides, uh, it's a pilot study, 
um, that provides a patient navigation intervention to opioid-dependent women who are initiating buprenorphine at a, uh, at a at a clinic here in our women's hospital that provides uh, that provided buprenorphine care, uh, prenatal care, and a little bit of case management services. Um, we um, to those services we added on patient navigation, given that. Um, it's clear that the women, um, in addition to the needs that were being met at the at the at the clinic, um, had a, had several other needs: psychosocial, um, housing, you know, a lot of different kinds of needs. Um, and they had, you know, in in engaging in those services and all the service care services at the hospital, uh, there wasn't kind of that individual who could help guide them through, um, kind of getting engaged in those services and staying engaged in those services. And if you're familiar with the patient navigation model that's been very popular in oncology, particularly breast cancer uh, research in the last 25 to 30 years, uh, this is a patient-centered approach for chronic health conditions for really uh, helping uh, individuals uh, uh, figure out how to navigate the health system um, in order to get the care that they need and stay engaged in care. So we felt like it was a really good fit uh, for the population. Uh, wanted to see if it would work um, in this particular care setting, and so we did a, we did a small trial um, where we recruited and uh, uh, gave uh, women um, the opportunity to have uh, 21 women, the opportunity to have this patient navigation intervention, which was 10 sessions uh, before delivery and then uh, um, four sessions after uh, after giving birth um, for that for that month, um, and really focusing on those you know on those key um, kind of um, you know remaining adherent to their buprenorphine, getting engaged in uh, behavioral health services. Um, improving their quality of life and so forth. So, so anyways, that's just kind of the 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 uh, over overview of it. The paper mentions that this is the first known time that patient navigation techniques have been used for. Is it um, for opiate use disorders, or is it specifically for expectant mothers with these disorders? Yeah. So at the time, you know, I don't know. I haven't looked in the last, you know, six or eight months. <laughs> Somebody else might have, you know, scooped us. I don't think they have. Yeah, but uh, specifically, um, patient navigation has been applied generally to some behavioral health, some um, substance use stuff, but not specifically to opioids from what we what we could find in the literature and definitely not for opioid-dependent pregnant women, again, from what we could find. So we do believe it's a novel application of a of a fairly uh, well-known evidence-based practice uh, for this kind of new, a new population. Okay. Was there a certain process when adapting these techniques to the certain, the specific population? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. So the, um, the, the navigation model um, was designed by investigators uh, from the NIDA Clinical Trials Network um, a few years ago uh, for a study they did with um, people who use alcohol and drugs who also um, ha- um, have HIV that's not, not managed very well. So it, it was developed based on their model, and that model was 
essentially two different uh, modalities, strengths-based case management plus motivational interviewing techniques. So from there, uh, our team, we, we took that uh, model, and you can read the, actually the main outcomes for that paper in JAMA. It came out like a year and a half or two ago uh, for the United Clinical Trials HIV um, study. So we took that model, and uh, with, uh, with the group from the NIDA Clinical Trials Network and other investigators from the University of Pittsburgh, uh, we, we modified it, and we, it was simply an iterative process where we would make um, changes to the model uh, to fit women, especially women in different milestones of their pregnancy in order to kind of help them out at specific times uh, during the course of treatment. Um, and uh, once we finalized it, you know, we started implementing it, and uh, we didn't make a lot of changes, a lot of changes to it. The only major change that we did was um, um, in how we communicated with the women in some instances. Um, uh, a lot, the, the original model was designed to be delivered 100% in person, whereas uh, at, the, at a clinic setting, Whereas we met patients where where they were at um, a lot of times um, because of whatever you know issues and um, they didn't feel well or whatever it might be to get into the clinic. The other thing that we did a lot of um, that um, a lot of people I think are seeing in substance abuse studies is we communicated with our patients a lot via text message. Um, yeah, um, and we didn't capture any of that, but um, if we were to take this study to the next level. Um, there would be some really interesting uh, potential applications of text messaging for uh, engaging with the women and uh, kind of keeping them engaged with the study as well as engaged in their own care. So, uh, again, we didn't capture any of that, but we actually had to kind of go by cell phones for our, our staff and everything in order just to keep keep up with the population because it's a, it's a much more popular way to uh, communicate these days. So, anyway... And you had favorable outcomes using these methods? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll just say uh, if we hadn't kind of met the women where they were at in many terms, we wouldn't have been able to continue kind of um, kind of keeping them engaged in many ways um, because it would just be too hard because, you know, anyways, because just the, the course of pregnancy isn't, you know, necessarily the most comfortable um, an easy kind of time in a woman's, you know, um, health. So, uh, so that's one. And the other is uh, just, you know, for a variety of reasons, the text messaging worked. You know, in terms of keeping the woman engaged and setting up appointments and sending, you know, whatever information they needed um, for for different aspects. Um, that was really really helpful. So, and and you can tell it's reflected in, you know, our retention rate. You know, you can see in the, the flow start of the study that. You know, except for the couple of, so we had one woman who discontinued, but all the other women, and then we had one woman discontinue, and um, I believe it was two who had miscarriages that were no longer eligible. But all the other women, they all started and they all finished um, the intervention. Um, so that was really awesome for us, and we were able to kind of watch them throughout and after. So Now looking back on the study, how... How applicable are these results in clinical practice, and what do you see as the role of a study like this in shaping the future of treatment for these women? Yeah, uh, so how it impacts clinical practice, I think uh, the most important kind of underscoring message um, is that, 
you know, this is a potentially viable model, potentially, right, because it was a pilot study uh, for the population. Um, and it, uh, it really shows that if, um, you know, because we had kind of the natural comparison group, you know, between the women who were discharged early versus the women who continued at the clinic, um, um, that if you can have someone like a patient navigator type um, individual continue to, to kind of engage and reach out to these women, you can really do a lot to make sure that they stay um, not only engaged in their prenatal care, but they but stay engaged in their um, their MAT uh, during the course of their pregnancy. So I think that's a really important thing. Uh, the you know as different care settings set up, you know these kind of patient-centered models were kind of a one-stop shop. You know, if a woman isn't compliant, you know, with some sort of aspect or she doesn't like that and for some reason she stops going to that care setting and she needs to, but she needs to continue on, uh, you know, with prenatal care, uh, MAT, uh, having somebody who can kind of transcend organizations is really, really valuable, um, not only for the woman in the, in the, in the neonate, but for public health generally. Um, to make sure that, you know, there's good birth outcomes, that there's uh, compliance with treatment, and, you know, there isn't some sort of negative ramifications. If, uh, if there could be uh, a coordination between multiple women's hospitals or even multiple, in our case it was a women's hospital, but, you know, maybe outpatient, ours is a outpatient clinic within a hospital, but, um, you know, multiple care settings for um, women who are uh, dependent on opioids who are pregnant. If there can be an alignment between organizations uh, for a multi-center study, that would be a way to um, be able to really, in, you know, get a large sample of these women and, and test out the intervention on a larger scale. So um, I think that's it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, I know we'd be very happy to... <laughs> at UPNC here to uh, partner with other people in, in a study like that. So, And I think you're going to have a lot of metrics or, or data on how are the women performing and then how are their, the neonates performing. That is the big hole that we did not, as I, we mentioned in the papers, what's, you know, what, what's the story for the, for the babies, and we are going to collect information on that. So hopefully with the three projects that we've done over the last few years here, uh, we'll put something larger together, kind of more of a, uh, almost like a, uh, like a program or a, like a center type uh, project where we can actually kind of take care of the women from uh, uh, everything from how their medication is used to all the way to how their babies do, you know, at, you know, a year after they're born. So we're really looking at the big picture for the population. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Cochran, for uh, joining us today on the podcast and uh, sharing all this information with us about your your study that's um, that's coming out in the next issue of the journal. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's been great to participate. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.